Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at what you might think of as the behind-the-scenes featurettes or deleted scenes of a particular chapter in Jane Austen's books. This week, we're going to be talking about Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 7. In Chapter 7, we learn a bit more about Mrs. Bennet's family, which will be important throughout the rest of the novel. Mrs. Bennet has one sister and one brother. Her father was an attorney in the small town of Meryton, which was just about a mile from Longbourn. Her sister married her father's clerk, a man named Mr. Phillips, who took over as an attorney after her father died. And they're mentioned frequently in the novel as either Mr. and Mrs. Phillips, or Aunt Phillips and Uncle Phillips, or My Aunt Phillips... Mrs. Bennet's brother, Mr. Gardner, is a tradesman living in London, and we'll meet him and his wife later on in the novel. Aside from genealogy, there are a couple of other important things that take place in this chapter. First, we find out that a militia regiment is being quartered in Meryton. Second, Jane is invited to spend the day at Netherfield with Bingley's two sisters. Her mother sends her on horseback, so she'll be trapped there due to a forecasted rainstorm. But unfortunately, Jane is caught in the rain, catches cold, and ends up quite ill. Upon learning about this, Elizabeth heads off to Netherfield to help care for her sister. Now, at the start of the chapter, we're given a brief look at the Bennett's financial situation. And here's a clip of that, courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. Mr. Bennett's property consisted almost entirely in an estate of two thousand a year, which, unfortunately for his daughters, was entailed, in default of heirs male, on a distant relation. And their mother's fortune, though ample for her situation in life, could but ill supply the deficiency of his. Her father had been an attorney in Meryton, and had left her four thousand pounds. We've talked many times before about the uncertainty that comes when we're trying to compare Regency wealth with modern wealth. Because you can't just use straight inflation. You have to consider how wealth was used in these different time periods. Catherine Torrance's article, The Economics of Jane Austen's World, which we've referred to a few times before on the season, estimates that the Bennett's annual income was somewhere between 197000 and $3 million a year. Now, this is a pretty big range, and it's a much different sort of range than the ranges we had with Mr. Bingley's income when we were trying to project that and Mr. Darcy's income. The one thing we can tell for sure is that Bingley's income was over twice that of Mr. Bennett's, and Mr. Darcy was five times that much. However much the Bennett income actually was, it needed to pay for the upkeep of his family of seven, the taxes and maintenance on the estate of Longbourn, and the salaries of all their servants. It still seems like a relatively sizable income, but Austin's remark that Mrs. Bennett's inheritance, quote, could but ill supply the deficiency of his, leads me to believe that £2,000 a year was not in fact all that much for a family of that size. It's interesting to compare this number with Austin's own income growing up, and I've seen varied estimates of the income of Jane's father, the Reverend George Austin. From what I've been able to find in published research, George Austin's income came primarily from three sources. First, tithes earned as a member of the clergy. Second, money earned selling produce from their farm. And third, money earned from running a private boarding house for boys while his daughters were away at school. In a brief biographical article about him, the Jane Austen Society states that he earned around £230 a year from tithes. At the end of the year 1800, Jane wrote to her sister Cassandra that her father had earned about £300 from the farm and that she expected his combined income for the year to be around £600. 
So even though Mr. Bennett's income is considered deficient, it's more than twice the income of Jane Austen's father, and he had six sons and two daughters to raise. Now let's turn our attention to the militia with our next clip about what's happening in Meryton. The village of Longbourn was only one mile from Meryton, a most convenient distance for the young ladies, who were usually tempted thither three or four times a week to pay their duty to their aunt and to a milliner's shop just over the way. The two youngest of the family, Catherine and Lydia, were particularly frequent in these attentions. Their minds were more vacant than their sisters, and when nothing better offered, a walk to Meryton was necessary to amuse their morning hours and furnish conversation for the evening. And however bare of news the country in general might be, they always contrived to learn some from their aunt. At present, indeed, they were well supplied with both news and happiness by the recent arrival of a militia regiment in the neighbourhood. It was to remain the whole winter, and Meryton was the headquarters. Often when people think about a British regiment being quartered in a town, they assume that the soldiers are staying in the homes of the townspeople. Quartering soldiers in private homes was, in fact, extremely common in England until around 1689. However, it was so universally hated that following the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and the 1688 Glorious Revolution, a document was drawn up by Parliament called the Petition of Right, which contained a list of grievances currently being suffered by the British people. The list included the forcible quartering of soldiers in private homes without the owner's consent. This document and the civil rights it outlined became the 1689 Bill of Rights and became part of English constitutional law. Shortly after that, a mutiny by some British infantrymen led to the passage of what was called the Mutiny Act. This act, which had to be renewed each year, established laws for governing military personnel and included a provision stating that when needed, the standing army was to be quartered only in public houses, taverns, and inns, but not in private homes without the owner's consent. Now, if you're familiar with American history, you might be confused by this, since the quartering of British troops was one of the complaints of the American colonists. In fact, the Declaration of Independence, written in 1776, explicitly calls out quartering large bodies of armed troops among us as one of the many grievances the colonists had with the king. Contrary to popular belief, British law did not force North American colonists to quarter troops in their homes. But despite what the law stated, during the French and Indian War, British troops were still forcing private owners to quarter troops in their homes, even though this was explicitly forbidden by English law. If you read the Declaration of Independence carefully, you'll see that the reason colonists give for their complaint against the king is, quote, he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. In other words, during the French and Indian War from 1754 to 1763, British troops were being quartered in colonists' homes without their consent, which was against British constitutional law. When the Quartering Act of 1765 was passed, this practice was ended, and soldiers were to be housed in inns and public houses. But the act additionally stated that if sufficient room couldn't be found in those locations, quartering could be extended to include any establishment that sold food or alcohol, private barns, sheds, and other unused buildings, but still not in private homes. So, for the sake of how we imagine things happening in Meryton, the troops would not be staying in private homes unless the owners invited them. Instead, their lodgings, or billets as it was sometimes called, would be in local taverns, inns, and other public houses. All right, finally, one last excerpt from this chapter about some relative distances. Elizabeth, feeling really anxious, was determined to go to her, though the carriage was not to be had, and as she was no horsewoman, walking was her only alternative. 
she declared her resolution. "'How can you be so silly?' cried her mother, "'as to think of such a thing in all this dirt. "'You will not be fit to be seen when you get there.' "'I shall be very fit to see Jane, which is all I want.' "'Is this a hint to me, Lizzie?' said her father, "'to send for the horses?' "'No, indeed. I do not wish to avoid the walk. "'The distance is nothing when one has a motive. "'Only three miles. I shall be back by dinner.' "'I admire the activity of your benevolence,' observed Mary, "'but every impulse of feeling should be guided by reason, "'and, in my opinion, exertion should always be in proportion to what is required. "'We will go as far as Meryton with you,' said Catherine and Lydia. "'Elizabeth accepted their company, and the three young ladies set off together. "'If we make haste,' said Lydia as they walked along, "'perhaps we may see something of Captain Carter before he goes.' In Meryton they parted, the two youngest repaired to the lodgings of the officers' wives, and Elizabeth continued her walk alone, crossing field after field at a quick pace, jumping over stiles and springing over puddles with impatient activity, and finding herself at last within view of the house, with weary ankles, dirty stockings, and a face glowing with the warmth of exercise. We talked back in season one about English footpaths and stiles, but to recap for our new listeners, or for those of you who may have forgotten— the UK has a very long history of what is known as right-to-roam laws that make sure people are able to walk from one end of the countryside to the other in a relatively unimpeded way. Because of these laws, most farmers' fields, country estates, and other bits of private property will often have public footpaths and sometimes even bridleways and byways. The laws related to these paths have changed in various ways over the centuries, but the spirit of the right-to-roam has largely persisted. And today it's helped on quite a bit by the Ramblers Association, if you go to their website and put in your postal code, assuming you live in the UK, you'll find a list of cross-country walks, information about those walks, local meeting times for people to go on those walks, etc. You can also purchase what are called ordnance survey maps, which have footpaths clearly marked out. The paths themselves are a mix of relatively new creations, old paths, and even some ancient paths that are super rich in history. You might find a footpath that used to be part of an Anglo-Saxon trade route or an ancient Roman road, and there are even some prehistoric paths leading between town sites and sources of water. Some footpaths will go right through the middle of a farmer's field, but often they will go along the edge where a hedgerow or some other fence has been established. Now, if a landowner puts up any type of fence, hedge, or wall around their property that intersects with a footpath, the footpath must still be publicly accessible so a gate will often be put in to accommodate people. The gates come in various forms depending on the age and the area and the disposition of the person who has to maintain them, but they're usually designed to make it fairly easy for a person to get through, but difficult or impossible for livestock to cross. Since the people traversing those paths can't always be trusted to close the gates behind them, things like self-closing kissing gates are often used. In other places, you may find a set of steps called a stile, which will be made of either wood or stone, they go halfway up the fence or hedge, and then another set on the opposite side leading down. Someone using the path will climb up the closest set of steps, swing their leg over the fence onto the other set, and then climb down the other side. So Elizabeth probably walked with her sisters on the road to the town of Meryton for that first mile, then Elizabeth spent some portion of the final two miles cutting across private fields via footpath and stiles, thus arriving at Netherfield quite dirty. But still fit to see Jane, which was all she cared about. Well, that wraps up this episode of My Cousin Jane. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalen.com slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.